Hello and welcome to part two of Werder Bremen, a club in demise, a talking foosball mini-series. My name is Nick Wiltagen and I'll be your host for this episode. Alongside with me is author of the great book Werder Bremen, Populäre Irrtümer und andere Wahrheiten, which translates to Werder Bremen, Popular Misconceptions and Other Universal Truth. The guy from the fantasy podcast, Flo Reinecke. Welcome back to the show, Flo. Are you, are you ready for some, some suffering? Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. And not uh, for suffering. And not just because it's really hot in Cologne uh, right now, Nick. And I have a small room. And uh, yeah, I could use a little uh, bit more cool air. But <laughs> we get through. <laughs> well, it's smallly suffocating. It's like Werder Bremen in, in a way. I was going so, to say there was yeah. a lot of hot, hot air uh, during the times yeah. that we are going to talk about. And uh, well... Let's let's start off. Uh, we left you uh, on the last episode with Werder going along nicely. The club had qualified for the Champions League on six out of seven occasions during those last seven seasons. It won the double in 2004, won another DFB Pokal in 2009. But after those years, things started to go slightly pear-shaped. During the last three years of Thomas Schaaf's long and illustrious tenure at the Weserstadion, the River Islanders finished 13th, 9th, and then 14th. After that last season, Scharf was let go. But given what went before, one has to ask, what started going wrong at that time? Yeah, I really see a similarity to what happened during the later stages of the Lemke reign. Because, um, uh, like I said in the first episode, football changes, uh, but sometimes you are slow to adapt um, because stuff works. Um, I mean, I mean, it's the same with the German national team. As long as you are successful, um, you are prone to not doing changes, although they might be necessary. And that's, I think, what happened. Um, Schaff was too long at Bremen, for for my taste, and Alofs was too long at, at Bremen, for my taste. So. I'm not sure if it's because they were saturated with the success they had or it was just that other clubs went on being cleverer. Um, Schaaf had a certain approach to the game and I think it was part of the Bremen success story that they were not just trying to play successful football like a club like Schalke. Uh, and Schalke can afford uh, to play ugly successful Football. They will still be a big club, uh, no matter how they play, uh, as long as they're successful. But with Bremen, it's different. At the start of the Schaaf reign, there weren't really a big name in Germany anymore. There were uh, a, a grey mouse, if that's a term that translates into English. I'm not sure of that, but that's basically a wallflower. Like no cared about? Yeah, no one cared about uh, what Bremen were doing. And that changed with Schaaf because he, he was saying, like, we're playing attractive style of football and try to be successful with that. But You score four, we not, score five. Yes, it's not debatable that we're playing an attacking style of football, no matter what. And um, that was part of the success, but it's also that you need to have a certain caliber of players to pull that off in the Bundesliga is much more it's 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 much easier to sit back and say we're playing a counter style of attacking football we're well organized we were like and uh like for instance uh, in the like the first few uh the first phase of the Nuri uh tenure at Bremen where they were playing solidly at the back and then just hitting the the, the opponents with counters that was never what, what Schaaf did. And um, after they had the players to pull that off, they started to make the wrong decisions on the transfer market. We talked about which players they had to let go, but usually they did get a lot of money for them and were able to buy a certain caliber of players, but they just were doing the wrong decisions. I mean, uh, the first one... And that was when everything w was going swimmingly, uh, was Carlos Alberto. They signed him in 2007. He should be, like, he won 
the Champions League with Diego uh, uh, in 2004 with, with Porto. But he was a broken man um, as he came to Bremen. And that's, I think, the, the most important reason why he weren't able um, to, to play to the standards that he... Uh, like, he was known for being a, a world-class talent, but he had some mental issues. Um, uh, Alofs hinted at it later. He he wa- he wasn't able to play. Uh, I mean, he he made more headlines for level. buying condoms at the gas stations late at night than for what he actually did on the pitch. Yes, and um, so they basically drowned almost nine million euros um, getting a guy who was paid a lot, but didn't get anything in return. Didn't get, I think a penny when he left um they they were like he was loaned out a lot but that was this kind of loan so yeah you play that guy we pay 60 percent of his wages and that's that so it, it was a real disaster uh, as a whole next guy um in 2010 they like they invested a lot of money uh, they brought in a brazilian called wesley um, probably not all of you know him. Seven point five million. You, even you shaking the hat. I, I know I know him, but uh, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, he was supposed to be the sort of guy who gave them some stability in defensive midfield, and uh, that didn't end up happening, did it? Although I have to say, like, I was a big fan of Wesley as he started at Bremen because he played really well at the start, and then. Like he had a, a, a major injury and never came back the way he it started out. So his start was actually not bad uh, at Bremen, but in the end it was the same with Carlos Alberto, loaned out. Uh, with uh, Bremen, uh, also have to pay s- uh, stuff, and in the end they they didn't get anything for him. And then they got a, a Austrian guy, I think, straight from university. Um, where he was teaching philosophy. Uh, I'm, I'm talking, of course, about Marco Arnautovic. Uh, they signed him for six point two million. Didn't get anything. Oh, I thought I thought uh, I thought he had uh, he had a he had a major in race relations. Yeah, <laughs> yep, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He he's not the brightest uh, candle uh, on the cake. Uh, I, I think it's it's fair to say, and that's also one. Like his, he's talent. He's a talented guy, and he did show that uh, at some parts. And Bremen always was known for being able to work with um, difficult characters. Yeah, diff- yeah, difficult characters. But I think what like that's also they they were overtaken by time because difficult characters in the nineteen eighties are just different than difficult characters. In 2010, with all social media and with all mobile phones and with everything being in the spotlight, I mean, can you imagine a guy like Uli Borovka um, being a, a professional football player in 2010? That wouldn't have been possible. Uli Borovka, uh, uh, to those of you who don't know his story. Um, he was a defender in uh, the 80s for Borussia Mönchengladbach before he joined Werder Bremen and uh, early 90s and mid-90s he actually moved to Poland, I think. And he had a massive drinking problem, uh, which he developed... Uh, no, he, yeah, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he, he's not mincing words. He's, so he was a, he's dry yeah. these days and uh, talking about yeah. those days... Uh, Mostly with horror, I would I would imagine, because he he was the sort of alcoholic who could drown two or three bottles of vodka and you know maybe twenty four beers or something. I mean that that was a usual Tuesday for for Uli Barovka, and uh, yeah, I mean given that he was frequenting a lot of dive bars in Bremen back in those days, you you would have had massive national headlines. In builds yes. and other papers yeah. these days. Yeah, yeah. It, it it was just another time, and I think Bremen was slow to adapt. Um, that there are other challenges with difficult. Like Miku was a difficult character. It was said about Miku. It was said about Ismail, 
but that was a different time um and also i think there were different characters uh miku and ismail uh, not comparable to i, th I think um, miku was very particular with what he wanted from his team and his teammates and uh, not always lost yes, for but, that but he wasn't he wasn't off the pitch uh, he, he didn't live like barovka to say the least yeah but he was very impulsive mm. i mean he hit fabian ernst in the face uh during practice session and like he like he had some like he he wasn't easy to work with um but like everyone knew that he he wanted success and that's uh, the main driver of all stuff that he does and you can't say that about anatovic that the success of the team is the main driver of every action he does you really like that's stretching the truth really really wide if you want to make that statement and uh, same with Carlos Alberto so I, I think they lost a bit that um, they like they were able to integrate difficult characters into their team but they like they made not a farther distinction from being a player being difficult than looking at okay why is a player difficult what's what's makes him tick maybe this is really a player we can't integrate into the team and i think a guy like anatovic he isn't a team player you you can't change him it's is you're, you're probably not being able to integrate him into your team whatsoever no matter what it's just not it's just not possible and, and then to uh, add the sherry on the cake of making bad decisions Getting his partner in crime, <laughs> one of his best mate, uh, mates, uh, Ilya, to sign in 2012, yes. which, you know, yeah. then then the two of them went on to make national headlines for several <laughs> bad decisions they made at night time. Yes. Yeah, um, that's bad. And then I think one key decision um, was in 2011, because like, they were two really bright young talents playing at Nuremberg at that time who were sought after by many clubs. Similar prize. During that time, sounds funny now, but during that time, Bremen had a big name, bigger name than Dortmund, um, and they could basically pick which of these two guys they want to sign, and they went to go with Mehmet Ekici, and Borussia Dortmund signed Ilkay Gündogan. That's the same summer in 2011, and it's the same price. Bremen played, uh, paid for Mehmed Ekici what Dortmund paid for Ika Gundogan. And I mean, it sounds really silly now, but I remember I, I was already working as a sports journalist back then, and I was talking to uh, some Nuremberg insiders um, about that deal. And I like I remember to that day that the guy said, "Yeah, Bremen got like." Like, uh, that's the next big thing is Mehmet Ekechi. He's, he's such a great signing. And then I say, well, what about Gundogan? How, how, how's his perspective? Yeah, I'm not sure about Gundogan. <laughs> if, if, he'll, if he'll make it. <laughs> not sure he has it in him. So, yeah, that's always hindsight. Uh, hindsight thinking. But, like, in 2011, I think it was, like, most people thought that Ekechi was more gifted than Gundogan and yeah Bremen followed that um in hindsight you have to say like that that that, that could have been another Pizarro Fuller decision changing the um yeah the future of the whole club if they would have signed the other guy uh, so uh, yeah um and these are the the big decisions that went wrong we we talked about the guys who like you had to pay a lot of money but i think there are a lot of small transfers they did that were just ridiculous and you know from the start on uh, it's not going to work i mean I'm, i i don't want to slag off a fellow scandinavian nick of, of you but that's all right he's swedish bremen let go um of Hugo Almeida, who I, I really liked him uh, uh, as a player. Um, although I have to check that I'm not getting 
um, the years mixed up. But uh, Bremen paid two uh, uh, 2.2 million for Danny Aftich, who I've never heard before, a Swedish striker. And um, like that was a time where you already could look up a player at YouTube and see a best-of video, which isn't always that helpful. But like if you're seeing a best-of of a player who's a striker, and you see in this, like, this is the best the player has to offer. And you see a YouTube video of that player and you, you clearly can see that he sucks. That's not, like, that's not a positive sign. And I'm not sure why, um, why they uh, did it. Um, it's, and, and another guy is pretty similar to him is uh, Joseph Akpala. They brought him in in 2012. All these, like, they were adding, like, they were throwing, like, 1 million, 2 million. You get one, you get one. We, we, and, and got players who never had the potential to live up to the standards that Bremen were holding themselves uh, uh, at that time. At least, like, with a player with, like Carlos Alberto, the talent was there. I, I don't think that you can't say that he wasn't talented. Yes, he was talented. He had mental issues. He weren't able to fulfill his talent. With Wesley, similar. At least there's, like, you, you see... Like you see a different scenario in which this transfer would have worked out. Like Anatovic is the first one on this list where I say I don't see a scenario where this one worked out, but that's also in hindsight because like he was young when he came to Bremen and you just could see he has raw talent and you thought yeah maybe we can just screw his head on straight and uh, it'll work. I mean but, the thinking back then was uh, well Schaaf got Ailton to work. How difficult could Anatovic be? Turns out very yeah, <laughs> difficult. Very different. And also, like, this this is, that translates. Just being Anatovic, being, um, uh, what's it, a, a decade later. Mm. Ailton would, in, in 2010, would probably be um, much harder to integrate into your club than 11 years before. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, there were those signings that, that were going the wrong way. And uh, um, the summer of 2012, that is really where Werder shot themselves in the foot, wasn't it? Yes. In, in my opinion, um, that, that was the turning point from being ambitious on the transfer market and still being able to compete and bring in bigger names um, and then not being able to compete anymore. And uh, the key personal change for me is the summer where Pizarro left without a fee to play his second stint at Bayern. And it's also where Bremen let go of Tim Wiese. And the Wiese... You never talk about Visa being one of the reasons why Bremen like were falling down the table. Um, but if you look back in spring of 2012, Bremen did everything they could to held on to Pizarro. Um, they wanted to extend his contract badly. They were putting a lot of money on the table for Bremen perspective. Um, and trying to convince him to extend his contract. And Pizarro wasn't doing a decision. So, like, Pizarro is a Bremen legend, but during that summer, he really did hurt Bremen because he wanted to play for Bayern, but Bayern weren't doing any rush decisions on if they want to sign Pizarro or not. So the decision was hold off for far too long. They didn't even try to um, extend the contract of Tim Wiese for real. Um, and he was one of Germany's best goalkeepers. And uh, I think he developed quite a lot during his time at Bremen. I, 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 I actually rated him pretty highly. He wasn't that uh, bulky in the end of his stage. He usually, <laughs> he actually came on to um, office line to claim a few crosses here or there, which like weren't happening uh, at, at the start of the time. And he was a really, really great goalkeeper. But because 
The club wouldn't have been able to extend the contract of Pizarro and Wiese, both of them uh, at the same time, for a lot of money. They tried to convince Pizarro to stay, although they should have probably known that it's a lost cause. And they let Wiese go for nothing because internally they thought, oh, we got this young, bright talent in Sebastian Militz. Uh, he, he's just as good as Wiese and like he's better as a, as a footballer with his feet although that's like something that is said about Milic I, I like he wasn't really able to show that on the pitch and that was the biggest downgrade you could have from going with Wiese uh, who like uh, almost got the starting job for Germany in 2010 and the World Cup had, had a great time um letting him go for nothing in 2012, not even trying to extend his contract because you want to extend the contract of the 33 years old Claudio Pizarro, who ended up going for free to Bayern. And starting the old kerfuffle, because Bremen, until Pavlenka came, and you can argue that even Pavlenka, after his first great year, was uh, having trouble after Wiese, they didn't have a great goalkeeper. And that's also like... Bremen had great strikers in, in their history. They had great attacking midfielders. But they also had very good goalkeepers. And I think it's the most underrated position in football. Um, a, good co a good goalkeeper changes a lot. And the difference between having Mielitz in goal in his first try as a Bundesliga keeper and he was abysmal and the guys who followed I mean a guy like Raphael Wolf I'm, I, I don't even know how he was able to play in the Bundesliga um, when he a goal kick like his goal kick is like the furthest he can hit the ball um, is the halfway line that's just that, sorry that's not what a professional footballer should be able to do but for some reason, like the goalkeeper development, that was a nightmare. And they, they, they hadn't had a stable guy playing on that position, like I said, until Pavlenka came. He was great the first year. He was bad the second year. And he was average the last year, which is like way better than all his predecessors after Wieser left in 2012. So... This were the summer where they they gambled on being able to hold on to their key asset, Claudio Pizarro, let Visa go because of that, and it ended up really hurting the the club, and they weren't able to fix that until much much later on. Mm. Yeah, uh, another club, another person who left that well somewhat sinking ship was Klaus Allos, and he was at the time really suffering from what. The development that had actually started during the good times uh, because there were boardroom conflicts starting to escalate back in 2007. Jürgen Born and Willy Lemke got into each other's hairs quite a lot back then. So there was, even back then when things were seemingly going swimmingly, there was a power struggle within the club with several powerful men trying to gain power. And, you know, these issues, as we described just now they they spilled into the transfers that were made by uh class Alos and and born the guy who discovered pizarro he he went in the end and and that was a loss for the club as well because he had good connections and as, as it turned out he was also a decent scout and with Alice although i think it's like this that's the only case of him uh and um i mean i talked to both of uh, I, I talked to lemke and i talked to born they're, they're both like really helpful and, and nice to talk to, but you can feel you can also feel a presence there. And um, you you probably all know from professional lives that that two guys who like are used to being the boss in the same room and at the same company. In that case, it's Bremen, and also with a different. Like a really different personality because Jürgen Alborn, he's like he's a showman, he's a story teller. He he knows his stuff, but he's also he's not risk averse. 
Lemke is a guy, um, if something were out of the coordinates of what Bremen can in his mind do, financially-wise, you wouldn't even think about it. While as Born is a guy who thinks, okay, we want that, we want that very bad. Um, how, how can we get there? What can we do? And if we taking some risks along the way, he would do it. And so they were, they were both leading figures. They had a different approach uh, to stuff that they did. And I, and I just think that's probably not going to work in most uh, environments, uh, having two of these uh, guys uh, at the same time at the club. Mm. So Klaus Alves left under these circumstances. Uh, his transfers had gotten more risky. They were more off the mark. And the man who was brought in to replace him was Thomas Eichin. Yes. And back then, that's, that was really a surprising move because Eichin had worked within ice hockey for many years, despite being a former footballer at Borussia Mönchengladbach and Köln, I think. So why did the club hire him, and what was he to bring? What was he supposed to bring to the table? So um, Bremen had still a Champions League side, salary-wise, but they weren't getting into the Champions League. And that was the problem. They were able to have a, uh, to build a lot of funds during that Champions League time. And that was just slowly dibbling away and away and away. And the money was just like sand through the hands. Was was running uh, away for, for Bremen. And they, it took them a long, long time. Because all the players that earned a lot of money at Bremen were still there. You, they they couldn't get rid of them without like losing a lot of money as well, and they had to um, change the whole structure of the club to make them sustainable without European football, and that was the task that Thomas Achin had to accomplish, and um, I, I, he. Um, worked uh, with the Cologne Sharks. That's a hockey team of uh, Cologne, like you said, or ice hockey. Um, I think hockey suffices. No one thinks about hockey as uh, field hockey stuff, I think. But um, he worked with them when they were in insol uh, insolvency, so they, they didn't have any money. And I think he accomplished to get crowned champions with them. And that was what... Um, uh, he he was uh, get to to do at Bremen, and you can't say that he failed at that necessarily. So he he made hard decisions. He was an outsider. That was another different uh, um, reason that he was signed because like a lot of was talked back then, and that's a similarity to today. That that you have to have a Vada pass to work for them in the present. And that's really not how you should run a football club. You should get the best guy for the job. Probably it's not a bad idea. But um, he was able to do all the harsh decisions um, because he hasn't had that better past and all the strings to all the powerful people in the club who all have their interest in um, who should stay, who, who should go etc and so he was able to do that he wasn't like he's just not that good uh, player evaluation wise and also I, th I think the um, the biggest mistake um, was going with Robin Dutt and then signing Cedric Macchiati and that was like Cedric Macchiati I'm sure he's now working as a youth coach for Bremen he's a nice guy but that was a typical uh, teacher pet of Robin Dutt. Um, Raymond had a lot of problems in their squad back at that time. Central midfield wasn't one of the problems. And um, they, they got Dutt from Freiburg, and he wanted his favorite player, Cedric Macardi, with him. Raymond played. Uh, paid 3 million for him he was 29 or 30 years old already 
didn't they didn't have any money couldn't spend it otherwise and he they they brought in a player where Bremen had at least players that were on par with what Macchiati brings to the table and that was a recipe for disaster that was a really um, a bad step and I'm not sure when the podcast will air but I'm afraid like, I'm really afraid that with Marcos Anfang a similar thing can happen if they decide to sign Marvin Duksch from Hannover uh, for a lot of money when if you look at the Bremen squad right now who knows who's going to stay but uh, as it looks right now you don't need a central striker you, you have Fulkrug, you have Sargent, although he'll probably go, but you have uh, especially Johannes Eggestein. Um, so you don't you don't have to invest in the striker. You have a guy with Kevin Behrens. He's an experienced second division striker who wants to play for Bremen. You can sign him for free. Don't, don't go and sign a Marvin Duksch who is 27 for money that you don't have just because the coach wants him. And uh, I, I think that would be the similar mistake of what uh, Dutt and Aichin did because they uh, they dig a hole with this Macchiadi transfer that they like they were never able to um, yeah get themselves out of that hole. I, I think another this. another sort of hole that Thomas Aichin dug for himself and for Werder was the fact that he had the he visited Juventus. Uh, during his stint and came back and said, well, what Juventus actually do? They have a lot of players on their books and they loan out many of them. We should do the same thing. So each and every year, Werder has sort of like 10 or 15 players that they don't really want to have at the club right there, right now. And they just try to loan them out and they end up shipping them to Hallescher FC, KFC Erdingen. And how many of these moves have actually worked out? Not a lot, yeah. Jean-Manuel Mbom uh, in recent history, he came from Erdingen um, because you mentioned it. Although, yes, I agree, but the players they got, they signed with that in mind, they weren't expensive. Uh, I think like the bigger problems are players they signed to be important like a Mehmet Ekishi, for, for instance. Um, but in the end, they weren't important. They couldn't find the buyer and had to loan out with actually all, uh, still paying some kind of the wages for their players and, and in the end not getting anything for for their player. And I think that were the bigger problems. Yeah, I, I agree that like there were a lot of players who said, like, is his... Is this really ever going to be a Bundesliga player? Probably not. But I don't, I don't think that that was so problematic in a financial kind of way. <laughs> Every little penny uh, helps. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's not a one-third uh, Macchiati if you add all these players up and what that costs the club. So, um, so that was... Um, a big decision, especially with Macchiati. He was so old, you knew he had a three-year contract with Bremen, well paid. After that contract, like, who's going to pay money for a 32-year-old midfielder? No one. So you know you sink that money into a player who has no sell value. And that's just not... You can't do that as a club like Werder Bremen is... And it's not like, yeah, we paid three million, but from shirt sales, like we got all the sum back and then some. It's it's not the case with a guy like Macchiati. No, <laughs> no, definitely not. All right, we'll be back in, in the second half of the show talking about what went on after Thomas Schaaf. Dies sei ein Spiel wie gegen Real, hat er gesagt. So hat er das sicher nicht gemeint. Werder bejubelt die Führung. Und in diesem Moment neun Punkte Vorsprung und die Meisterschaft in diesem Moment. Fünf Rote und drei Grüne. Da darf sowas nicht passieren. Ah, was für ein Patzer von Kahn. Sicherlich das zehnte Auswärtstor, Ligaspitze von Klasnitsch. Aber wie hatte Kahn auf Schalke gesagt? Eier brauchen wir an ein solches faules Ei. Hatte er sicher nicht gedacht. 
following Thomas Schaaf was always going to be a tricky act. I mean, it's a bit like walking on stage after Metallica. Yes, in this case, Metallica finished with a few songs from Saint Anger. Probably some kind of monster and... Uh, yeah, frantic. Um, but hey, there were all these great songs from Justice and the Black Album and... Uh, Master of Puppets going before and even though there was a crappy finish to, to the concert it was still a pretty decent show so if you want to succeed in that environment you must bring some good material of your own to the table and the first man who was trying to do just that was Robin Dutt um, he stayed at the club for a little over a season so why didn't things work out under him besides you know the signing of Cedric Macchiati yeah I, I think that's an important uh, aspect but also like Robin Dutt um, I think he he always wants to be cleverer than the opponent uh, I'm not sure if the reason is why um, because he um, I think if I remember correctly he never was a professional footballer himself and um, you always got the feeling that he has to prove um, that he can play with the big boys uh, as a coach, and I like I always remember with Robin Dutt, I, I liked the appointment. I thought it was um, a good decision at the, at the time because of the work he did at, at Freiburg. Um, he failed at Leverkusen, so I um, I, I put that wrong. I, he, he didn't came from Freiburg. Uh, straight to Bremen. He he failed at Leverkusen, but afterwards um, I read an interview with him where he really was analytical of what he did wrong at Leverkusen. I really had the feeling he learned from that experience uh, at a bigger club and now was ready um, to do what he did at Freiburg, doing successful work uh, at Bremen. But the first game um, Bremen had with Dutt was a cup match at Saarbrücken. And I happened to be in the stands to cover that game for the Bundesliga website. And Brim went out uh, and over time, uh, I think 3-1. to one. And afterwards on the presser, like, you have to look at the lineup of that um, match to see what I mean with being too clever. Because um, he played... Niels Petersen, who we all know um, as a left winger, and played Aaron Hunt as a lone striker up front. That's how he played in his first match. And like honestly, I, I I can't even find words how you make this decision. And he made stuff like that. Like Petersen was playing as a winger on a quite regular basis, which is just shocking if you knew. Uh, if you just know where the qualities of Niels Pedersen are, and yeah, and Aaron Hunt is not a physical number nine, we know that. Um, but like Robin Dood tried to do stuff differently, and uh, later on on press, I, I asked him specifically about his decision, and yeah, he, he was saying, "Why? Yeah, why not? I think they." Can, can play on these positions and we want to be flexible and stuff like a coach would say. It was really nice, um, but that was like, that was the day he, he lost me basically after I was looking forward because I just like, that's like, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm no, like, I, I don't claim to be on par with my football knowledge than a guy like Robin Dutt is. Um, and he he definitely probably has reasons that's just eluding me um, for doing the stuff he did. But that's just plain logic. And maybe you think of something clever, but it's not working. And um, I think most strong coaches play players in the in where they are best fitted. And um, that's not what what do did and also they they played a horrible kind of football so it was like a 180 from what Schaaf did we want to play attractive and um, that way we want to be successful 
to do it where it was just really we 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 were playing passive kind of counter-attacking football, but it's not like really fast counters. Well, I, I enjoy a, a team who's just playing vertical all the time if they get the ball and, and taking risks. As soon as they got the ball, they're a swarm of bees and everyone is trying to attack and overwhelm the opponent. That's not how the football look. And so uh, that's all in all with... Of course, the added um, component that the squad wasn't wasn't that good anymore, and all that led um, to a further down spiral, um, and and being like basically in relegation trouble. I I can't think of a single season since Schaaf left when, at least at one point of the season, it was a relegation battle for Bremen. I think it was every year, even. These where they were close to finishing to Europe, it was most of the time it was after a abysmal start and, 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 and a coaching change. And then uh, at the end, they were close. Yeah, as, as, qualifying for Europe, uh, as, we, as we said uh, in, <laughs> in, at, at the start of, 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 the, uh, of the first show, uh, Werder finished only three times in the top nine uh, over the last decade in the Bundesliga, which is... Uh, it's, just horrible, really. Um, given given the size and and the importance of the club and what went on before, um, well, after Robin Dutt had failed at the club, the club started looking inward to find uh, a new coach, and they handed the uh, they handed the keys to the office for the head coach position to Viktor Skripnik. The Ukrainian kept his job for a little over a year before he was succeeded by Alexander Nuri, another in-house solution. Nuri managed to get the team to an eighth place finish before. Results started to sour the following season. I mean, why why didn't things work out under these two coaches? Because both of them know the club. Both of them have that. At least Skripnik has had that Verda DNA, as he had been a the Ukrainian backham at at Verda for some time. Um, Nuri had been at the club in other coaching positions before he took over the head coach position. Why didn't it work out? I just think both of them are not that great coaches. I think Skripnik has an appeal as a really nice guy. And um, after after Dutt, who isn't known for his great relationships to to his players, although I have to say as a journalist, like um, he, he was always... Um, okay to work with, so I don't have anything too uh, bad to say about that. Um, except that I had different opinions. Um, but Skripnik, like, he, he was a breeze of fresh air for all the players. And that's like, I mean, remember Borussia Mönchengladbach when Andre Schubert did take over and they just couldn't stop winning? Although Andre Schubert is, like, arguably not a good coach, or not arguably, he isn't, he isn't a good coach I, I would say um, and you can see that there's a documentary uh, um, that's following three German coaches and Andre Schubert is one of them and like I always if I see that I always ask myself how, how can he end up the documentary you're talking coach. about is probably uh, Trainer, Trainer by, uh, yeah. by Joshua Pauser which uh, has been available at Netflix, but I don't know if it still is. But uh, I'm sure you can get the DVD with yeah, uh, it's worth it. With, it's worth it with the subtitles. So um, it's it's worth a watch because it gives some some good insights. But yeah, there's there's definitely one great coach in that. Yeah, Frank Schmidt of Heidenheim, who has been there for donkey years and is going to stay yeah. there forever probably. And then there's Andre Schubert and. The guy who used to coach Paderborn, but who's not on anybody's radar right about now, really. Yeah, rightfully so, because he's like he's mental. If you see that documentary, uh, like he's he's so full of himself. He's saying, "I'm going to be coach in the Bundesliga." That's a fact. So that's like how he starts the statement, and yeah, like, uh, and you got this Frank Schmidt from Heidenheim. He's like, and you can f just feel that he's a very nice guy, and um. Uh, that I, I think that was what the positive with Skripnik. He wanted to also play attacking football, but he wasn't the best to adapt, I would say, 
and to to have a great strategy in the long term uh, I, I don't think that's what happened and same with Nuri um, like he's talked about his like his skills and how uh, how he's funny in the dressing room and, and stuff and I, I think that's why they had short-term success but lacked it in the long term I think what really frustrated me with both of them was the fact that when things started to go south uh, Skripnik always had sort of the same tactical setup. He never, he was easy to read for oppositions. And when things started not working out in matches, he never changed anything. Never. Always the yeah. same tactical setup. Always the same place. And, you know, you could say the same about Nuri, who is... Um, and, and one of the reasons why I think things didn't work out for Jürgen Klinsmann at Hertha was that the guy who was in charge of tactics for Jürgen Klinsmann at Hertha was Alexander Nuri, who, yeah, they, they, yeah. who is basically not a great tactician. I mean, the thing, the reason why things worked out for you in Klinsmann at Germany was he had Joachim Löw, who at that point was probably one of the greatest tacticians that Germany had to offer. Yes, yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And at the good times with, New, with Nuri, they were so outperforming their expected goals value it, it it wasn't even funny how they were able to win i mean that was a year that franco di santo i think scored 13 goals with and had with expected goals value of like five it, it was really he he was taking shots from 20 yards out and they were just hitting the back of the net quite regularly and it, it was clear from like if you analyze football on a higher level you know that's not sustainable it's like you get teams that do that from time to time for a for a shorter period of time, but it's not, it's just not something that you can rely on on the long term. That you have a striker totally outperforming and like like look what DeSanto did before and after that season. It's an outlier season and um, uh, it's. Um, that's that's a problem as a club like Bremen you need to have an identity you need to have a clear pass of how you want to play football and then you have to sign the players that exactly fit the kind of football you want to play and that's that hasn't happened in Bremen for a long time and and that's the issue and that, that has to do with another notable staffing change that occurred during Skripnik's tenure, actually. And that was that the fact that Thomas Achin, he ruffled too many feathers, made too many wrong decisions, and he was let go in the end. And yeah. Frank Baumann, uh, another Werder insider, was brought in to fill that spot. And one of the first decisions that Baumann made at the club was that after a horrible end to Skripnik's last full season in charge, which saw Werder narrowly escape relegation, on the last match day of the 15-16 season, uh, with a 1-0 win over Eintracht Frankfurt, a goal that was scored, was it an injury time or almost an injury time? 88th minute. Um, Bocci, still have that picture in my uh, floor. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, that, that was basically a battle between two sides that could be relegated, and in the end, Frankfurt... Drew, drew the shortest draw and look at where those two teams are now <laughs> um, yes but um, uh, Aichin actually was like Aichin was still in charge um, when they played Frankfurt on uh, that last game and the reason why Aichin had to go that he wanted to sack Skripnik after the season and the Bremen board wasn't on board with that and so they said, you want to... So it was either Skripnik or Aichin. One of these guys had to go because Aichin wanted a new coach. And that's why they did install Baumann because they wanted Skripnik longer at the club. And I think after two match days the next season, he was let go. So By from Baumann, yeah. who um, shortly before that had extended his contract by two or three years. Um the wisdom of that decision escapes me, really, especially after after that end to the 
2015-2016 season. But um, hey, uh, that what that was what's happened. Um, three match days in the 16-17 season. I just looked it up. So three match days. Skripnik got lost all three games, and then he was let go, and uh, because the board was so convinced in the summer that they should fired the sporting director instead of the coach because he's so great and yeah like you said extend the contract and then let him go after three match days great 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 work uh which probably wasn't costly at all well this is it for another episode of our four-part mini series vertebramen a club in demise i hope you enjoyed it flo always great talking to you tell our listeners where they can find you on twitter and where they can find your work um, you, you can find me at Twitter. Um, I think the best is to go at the Talking Foosball um, um, Twitter. And there's a link to my Twitter because it's a German word and I'm not like I'm not good at spelling and you probably won't remember it. So follow Talking Foosball if you're not already. And there you find in the bio, you'll find my Twitter handle. It's ausgefuchst. Ausgefuchst. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at NormMusings. You can find the podcast on Twitter at TalkingFoosball. If you really enjoyed this or any other episode of our podcast, please make sure to go to iTunes to give us a rating there. Tell your friends about our podcast so we can bring more people into the Bundesliga fold. And maybe even... And your enemies. And maybe even the Werder Bremen community. Until next time, it is goodbye for now.